0: Well, after last week's content, I'm just really glad any of y'all showed up again this week. Thanks so much for coming back. As Andy said earlier, um, I'll reiterate um, this isn't the greatest environment uh, if you have young kids with you. And I'll just take it one step further. Um, uh, today's content's not only not appropriate for them, this environment isn't the best place. In fact, I think it's criminal if you're keeping them from the environments that we create here. Our teams are phenomenal. And I think we create the Disney World of church uh, for the next generation. And it's because of your generosity that we're able to do that. So thank you for contributing. And if you've never had uh, connected your kids in one of our environments, if you watch online, um, I promise you we have all the time kids that show up for the first time and they ask their parents, can we go back tomorrow? Why can't we go back tomorrow? And it's like, well, they only have it once a week. So uh, we're working on that. Um, So today, uh, and we're continuing our series, it reminded me of a story. Um, There's an ancient story told about an old rabbi uh, who was approached by a man with one of life's biggest questions. And when he approached this rabbi, he came literally distraught, like trying to figure out and searching. He had been searching uh, all these, through all these different religions and these faiths about uh, trying to get this, this one big question answered. And the question he had for, for the rabbi, he said, um, Rabbi, I have a strong desire to live forever. What must I do to live forever? And the rabbi paused for a second and, and he waited and he contemplated and then he looked at the man and sort of almost like it dawned on him for a moment, he said, get married. And the man said, get married, that's it. Like, I, I get married and I'll live forever. And the rabbi said, no, but the desire will disappear. <laughs> it's actually funny in a tragic sort of way, isn't it? Um, Our culture's view of marriage, which is why we're talking about what we're talking about, it it is sort of eroded to something other than what God intended. Um, We're not experiencing in our culture the sort of intimate relationships um, that God designed for you and I to experience. And last week, we talked about how the the fact that, that God designed you um, in terms of a relationship, specifically in terms of your sexual expression, um, to experience that in an intimate relationship of marriage. And And he actually went as far as to say that the safest context for sexual expression is marriage. And that is because intimacy, as we talked about extensively last week, intimacy requires exclusivity. It's, it requires exclusivity and monogamy. And this is something that's been incredibly devalued in our culture. Uh, we, we learned this as we, we traced the history. We kind of look back in history, uh, back to about the 1900s. If you weren't here, I don't have time to go through the whole thing. But we traced how this came about, that, that sexual, sexual expression in almost any form became permissible and accessible maybe more than any other time in history. But it's also true that at the height of this sexual liberation, rates of depression and anxiety and the struggle for secure attachment are at all time heights as well, which creates a significant problem. And, and the Apostle Paul, he basically said, look, nothing affects, nothing affects uh, your body it, nothing affects your body or or your life or your your capacity for intimacy more than missing the mark sexually. And we'll come back to this in a minute, but uh, missing the mark is an archery term. It's like we were aiming at the wrong thing and we, we certainly missed the mark. And, and we know this. We talked about this last week. We know this neurobiologically it, that uh, unrestrained sexual expression erodes our capacity for secure attachment. And and it it minimizes our ability to experience the true intimacy that we desire and so many struggle to discover this and they don't realize it's because they've missed the mark in other ways. Now, we stopped short. Um, The apostle Paul actually went further uh, than than. We did. In fact, we stopped uh, last week. Uh, we left off with Paul basically giving marriage as the antidote for the safest context for sexual expression. But he went even further than this. And um, you need to buckle your seatbelt earlier in the service today. This is what he says. And yes, we're going to go there. He says, the husband, in the, in the marriage context, he should fulfill his wife's sexual needs. And the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband. And the husband gives authority over his body to his wife, to which some of you are like, are we really gonna talk about this in church? And you're sort of cringing because misapplication and misuse and abuse of this in many contexts has made marriage an easy target. However, these verses, they point to, they illustrate a second component that is absolutely critical to intimacy. This these, these verses here, they basically say, here, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna choose to give all access to you. I'm gonna give all of myself and all access to me for your greatest good, for the sake of your needs. I'm choosing to give myself to you fully, which involves incredible vulnerability, right? And this is what I want to talk about a little bit today, because um this is not the sort of weakness that that gets painted towards men. you just need to be more weak or 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 that 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 this is something that that you know is like ushy gushy like this is a powerful component to experiencing intimacy, and to fully understand this. We have to go back to the beginning. And some of you know I like to talk about Genesis. It's 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 like my favorite story. And in Genesis chapter two, we go back and we see this vulnerability in the beginning. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. So at the very beginning, when there was just one man, God's going, and the, the word for man here is mankind. It's not male. It's mankind. It's not good for mankind to be alone. So I'll make a helper who is just right for him. It's not good for anyone to live alone, for you to do life alone. So now the Lord God, um, he had formed out of the ground, all the wild animals, just as he did Adam, uh, all of the wild animals and, and the birds of the sky. And he brought them to the man, but for the man, no suitable helper could be found. Now, I just wanna take make a quick time out. This phrase, in the scriptures, has been of much debate. In fact, oftentimes it's 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 used as a oh, so God's going to create woman, and she's sort of just she's just sort of the helper. She's just you know sort of the assistant. She's sort of secondary to the man. But that's a massive misunderstanding of the scripture right here. This little phrase that actually literally is translated "help meet." And it's not used really anywhere else to describe woman. In fact, the mo- the, the, the most used, um, uh, this phrase is most used in the scriptures, particularly in the Psalms. And it's the same construction of the Psalms to describe what God was to David when he was facing his most formidable challenges and his most formidable adversaries. God's basically saying, you know, you shouldn't live alone. You shouldn't do life on your own. You you shouldn't do this by yourself. And so I'm gonna create for Adam somebody, a help me, somebody who has divine power, divine design to help and walk through the challenges and the difficulties of life to face any of the adversaries. So we're told the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, which is so interesting. And while he was sleeping, He took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. Here's what I think is interesting about this. God made the man utterly vulnerable and a vital part of him was necessary, was taken out of, was given to create the woman. I, I, I think this is, 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 is fascinating. God forged the possibility for deep intimacy in this relationship through ultimate vulnerability as he put the man to sleep and took a, a significant part of him out to create the woman then the man said in response, he said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Again, because she was taken out of man, this is creates the capacity for them to experience this oneness. And that is why the the man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become the two, become one flesh. And in the Hebrew, there's a a noticeable wordplay here that we don't get in the the English language, in the Hebrew language. And and this idea of being taken out and entering into this oneness is this description of an intimacy that you, you really can't get any closer than that. You see, the, the rib was taken out of Adam to create Eve so that they could be this one flesh and have this oneness about them. And then the man is taken out of his family and he's joined with his wife to, to be in this intimate relationship for them to be able to experience this oneness. And this is an ancient description of attachment. I told you last week, um, literally around the, uh, over about the last half a century, Um, psychologists have recognized this incredibly alarming decline in the ability for secure attachment among adults, which is the primary factor that determines whether you're able to uh, experience intimacy or not. And the problem is that all the cultural messages that we get about relationships, especially about romantic relationships, they're not about attachment, they're about attraction. That, that attraction, not attachment, are the, are the thing that we focus on. And it's what all the movies are about. It's what all the articles are about. It's what all the blogs are about. It was, it's what all you see on social media. It's this is what relationships are about. And, and attraction's important. But you just want you to you know, we know the science of attraction. Don't, don't be confused. It's three chemicals. It's dopamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine. It's the combination of these three chemicals. Dopamine's your happiness chemical, uh, serotonin is the thrill chemical and norepinephrine is the restless, restlessness chemical. So what happens is you meet somebody and they make you feel a certain way and you feel happy. And, and not only that, you feel some level of thrill. This is, this is what you experienced when you were walking away from your first date with, with that person. And you feel this on the inside and you're like, what is this? I can tell you what it is. It's dopamine and serotonin. And then you're like, I need to see them again. Or, or maybe tonight, maybe tomorrow, like I, I, you, you have this restlessness, which is the norepinephrine. And, and this is the science of attraction. And eventually though, what happens is you go into seasons where you're not happy. And there are certain things that happen in a relationship that are difficult. And it's not new anymore. And it's not thrilling. And you've explored a lot of the things together. Problem is, is you're still restless, And you're not feeling it. And then you begin to think, maybe I'm not, maybe I've made the wrong decision. This isn't the right person for me. Because attraction, while powerful, isn't strong enough. These chemicals firing, it isn't strong enough to hold two people together forever. What's happened is most of us have been duped by these chemicals in our body to make us think that that's what I have to feel, that that's what true intimacy looks like. But the reality is, is the greatest amount of intimacy happens when somebody experiences this attachment, this oneness, the way we were designed to. to. And intimacy doesn't come through attraction. It initiates through attraction, but it comes through access it's when you give access to, to, to another person physically and mentally and emotionally. And these are, these are to varying degrees because even you think about a, an intimate conversation where you're just talking about facts, you know, that, that's just about the, the physical world. And, and then you talk maybe about uh, opinions, but then when you talk about feelings, um, even in our conversations, you can see they get more intimate. And this is true about sharing your life with somebody. When you give increased access to your life, there's an increased potential for intimacy and oneness, attachment. But we do this recklessly often. And it happens so quickly that we give people access unnecessarily, unwarranted to our lives because we're feeling a certain way. But attachment, the, the deep enduring bond, that's, that's all attachment is. If you've read anything about attachment theory, it's just a deep enduring bond that forms human connection, real human connection. And this human connection is the thing that God designed you for in the beginning. In fact, the first human connection story culminates with a description of the essence of their relationship. And I told you last week, I was gonna give you a definition for intimacy. I don't even have to make it up. It's right in the scriptures. This is the definition that we get for intimacy. This is the culmination of the creation, the human connection story. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. I want you to think about this for a second. Let's think about this on an adult level today. These two people, fully accessible to one another, nothing to fear, nothing to hide, no withholding, no games, and no shame. Fully known and fully accepted by one another. The the description of true intimacy, what it looks like to be as close as you possibly can, to be one, with another person, is to be completely naked, nothing to hide, and unashamed because you know you'll be fully accepted. The problem is, is you turn the page and sin enters the world, and they behave badly, like many of us have behaved badly at times in our lives. And for some of us, we behave badly, or others behave badly, and for some of us, it's things we did, and others of us, it's things that were done to us. And when sin entered the world, things changed. And it changed not only the nature of their relationship, but the the nature of their relationship with God. When sin entered the world, we're told that their their eyes, the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked, which they didn't realize before because they had no reason to be fearful. But they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And they hid. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The first thing they did when they had something to be ashamed of is to cover up and hide. And we've been doing it ever since. Not just with God, but with each other. In a six-year study, um, renowned, uh, uh, clinical, uh, renowned uh, clinical social worker, uh, Brene Brown, she's also a research professor, uh, she discovered that more than anything else, Um, The thing that blocked the capacity for deep human connection was shame. When there was something about you, something that had been done to you, or something that you had done that was shameful that you wanted to keep in secret, that was the thing more than anything else that blocked deep human connection. In fact, her TED Talk went viral, including all platforms. It's it's around 100 million views, and it resonates so deeply, and here's why. It's one of the oldest truths about the human condition. Is that when there's something about us that we feel shame around, we cover up and we hide and we block intimacy. Shame is oftentimes associated with the feeling of guilt. But here's the thing, this is important. Guilt and shame are two different things. Guilt is I did something wrong. Shame is there's something wrong with me. And that feeling of there's something wrong with me causes us to feel like, Why would somebody wanna be close to me? Why would somebody wanna be near me? This shame is primarily the fear of disconnection. It's what creates insecurity. There's something about me, something I've done or something that somebody else has done to me. And if others knew it, they'd consider me unworthy of connection. They would consider me undesirable. Here's the fascinating thing. It's usually in the beginning when we're all about attraction and the dopamine and the serotonin and the norepinephrine are firing. You know, we, we, what we don't realize is we're hiding all of those things and those things that eventually as, as somebody presses in and we get to know somebody, we get more and more fearful of being forthright because we wanna just continue to put our best foot forward because we put our best foot forward and they liked us and they moved toward us and we're afraid if they know who we really are and what's really going on, they won't wanna move toward us. And this is a big problem in our culture, by the way. Conservative uh, statistics, there's a whole bunch of studies, you can do your own research. I do my research. 50 to 60% of adults deal with insecure attachment. That means if you extrapolate that out, four out of five, roughly four out of five relationships, a deal with insecurity that that's obstructs the ability for vulnerability in a relationship. That it's, it's like, I don't even have the capacity because I don't have the secure attachment. I don't have the security. Now, this comes from somewhere. And, and, and you know, visuals are helpful for me. I, I, duh. I, I know you, you already know that. Um, that kind of goes without saying. But, but you know this, you're, you're, you're gonna be able to place yourself in one of these quadrants. And I'll just say this, if you're a psychologist today here, you may be squirming in your chair because this is a massive oversimplification because we don't have time, this would take weeks. But here's what I want you to know. There's two dynamics at play. There's how well you're known. And, and growing up, some of you, you felt really well known by people or, or by people in your family and others of you didn't. You, didn't, you were, you were shyer, you didn't have people that were interested in your life and you felt relatively unknown. And then, then some of, of us, we felt by the people who were in our lives, we felt incredibly accepted by them. And then, writing that way is really hard. And then, and then there's other, others of us who felt rejected by people. And, and in our lives, we have significant experiences with either being accepted or rejected. And, and, and these, both of these things happen to varying degrees in our lives. And if you were somebody who grew up and you felt like, gosh, my parents were interested in me and they paid attention to me and I had coaches or teachers or leaders or mentors or small group leaders who were interested in my life and they accepted me for who I am, this is just logical. You have, you you walked with a a great deal of confidence. Confidence. You were confident in your ability uh, to securely connect with other people and you were willing to be vulnerable because in most every environment where where people got to know you, they accepted you regardless of your faults and your failures. And so you were more confident and you embraced vulnerability because there was a low level of fear. Conversely, if you were really well-known by people in your life and maybe there was somebody in your your life, maybe, maybe it was a parent, that, that left or rejected you or maybe it was somebody um, in your early years that really hurt you or in your formative years or, or maybe it's somebody who committed to you and, and then they, they left you or they betrayed you. The truth is, is you become incredibly avoidant of vulnerability and for good reason, right? Like, because you, the last time you let somebody get to know you, 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 you were hurt by them. You were betrayed you were rejected. What happened was, and you don't, you don't think about it this way, but this is, clinically, what it is, is, is you experienced an injury, an injury that needed to be healed. And there's actually, we're gonna get to this in a minute, there's a way in which God designed for that to be healed in you, but, but you experienced an injury and it caused you to be incredibly avoidant in terms of being vulnerable with other people. And, and so... In some cases, um, you decided, you know, you weren't gonna be vulnerable with anybody and you were gonna pretend and you weren't gonna let people know you anymore. There, it seems like the hardest thing would be when you're unknown and you're rejected. But the truth is, is these people are actually just hesitant. They're just, they're just hesitant because in some ways it's like, well, if somebody rejects you and they don't really know you, if they say something harmful about you, you don't really know you. It's like, I, I, they didn't really know me anyway. They don't know what they're talking about. It's easier to dismiss, it, it's that when somebody knows you and rejects you, or when you're unknown and you're accepted, you want to keep that up because if you think about it, if if I if I, if I'm if I'm just a little bit vulnerable, to people, if I just let people in a little bit and they continue to accept me, I feel some level of security. But the reality is, is you know clinically th- this. This is a secure attachment style in relationships. And these three categories represent, as I told you, 50 to 60% of the world. Four out of five relationships deal with people in in the relationship that are either avoidant or they're hesitant or they're resistant. And and what oftentimes happens is um, people that are avoidant move to resistant because they, they become you know, somebody that they think somebody wants them to be so that they can be accepted. And there's actually a lot of evidence that shows that people who are here have an easier time moving in this direction. But the truth is, is this is how, this is a dynamic that's at play. And I'll tell you what, there's an amazing illustration of this. It's amazing how many of these things we learned in childhood and we didn't even realize it. The, the amazing illustration of it is this right here. Anybody remember this from your childhood? The seesaw. Anybody like the seesaw? How many of you like the seesaw? Like nobody's hands go up. How many of you hate the seesaw because somebody dropped you on the seesaw at some point? (laughs) Exactly. Like, it's like this awful but unbelievably, um, uh, an unbelievable picture. I want you to think about this for a second. When you're on the seesaw, what creates vulnerability is when you move towards someone. When you move towards someone, there's leverage that they gain in the relationship, and you move to an insecure position. And then, when we were kids, you had to answer a series of questions and get them right um, for them to let you down, and 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 you know that that's how that would typically work. And then they would move towards you, and and you could move down. But but it's this incredibly vulnerable place when you move towards someone. And it's falsely associated with weakness. It involves uncertainty and risk and emotional exposure and the risk of rejection. It's unbelievably courageous. It takes courage to face our past and our failures and our brokenness, much less share it openly with someone else. It's easier to avoid it and to ignore it and to resist the vulnerability, but... That's why so often we don't experience what we were designed to experience. Brene Brown says this. She says, we can't selectively numb emotion, which means you can't pick and choose which emotions you wanna numb. We numb. When we numb our guilt, shame, and fears, we also numb joy and gratitude and happiness. When we try to avoid or we're hesitant to, to engage with or resistant to engage with being vulnerable, because of shame, because of fear, because of guilt. The truth is, is we also numb or restrict our ability for joy and gratitude and happiness. She goes on and she says, if you put shame in a Petri dish, which this is such an interesting idea, if you put shame in a Petri dish, it needs three things to grow exponentially, secrecy, silence, and judgment. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. If you put the same amount of shame in a Petri dish, and you douse it with empathy, it can't survive. If, if you put that sort of, if somebody chooses to be vulnerable and, and with the thing that they're afraid that somebody will reject them because of the most and you put it into an environment where they experience empathy, they, they find comfort in the midst of it. The shame can't survive. So. Couple quick keys for cultivating uh, this sort of security. Because if that's the idea, if 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 the most, if the majority of people and the majority of relationships have insecurity or insecure attachment in them, what do you have to do? Well, the, the first thing is obviously to create an environment, a cultivated environment of acceptance, empathy. As Brene Brown talks about, it is a form of acceptance that leads to what's known as psychological safety, and, and this takes time. This is this is interesting. Chart number two. Some of you are wondering, what in the world is that X over there? What are we doing with that? So, so here's what happens in a relationship, and and. You know, this is basically this chart over here. If we extrapolate this chart, how do you move towards that? Because if you're trying to move out of one of these quadrants into here, how does that work and what does that look like in a relationship? Well, obviously, you got to have acceptance in the relationship. And, and if you want to see vulnerability, uh, which, is, which is the other axis here, if you want to see vulnerability increase, here's what happens. You have to have a level of acceptance for a long period of time. And then it begins to move like that. It, it, it's like, this is the mark. This is the, the, the moment when security happens. And it doesn't happen right away. It's not like, hey, would you just be vulnerable? When you, would you become secure? That, that's not the way it works. It's like acceptance saying to somebody, I see you as you really are, and I still want to be close to you. That, that's the, the primary message that needs to be communicated over and over as somebody, and again, takes low-level steps towards stepping into this quadrant to, to be a bit vulnerable about what's really gone on in their life and in their, their past. My wife and I have, have dealt with this. We about a seven or eight-year mark in our marriage um, there were some things I just I, I remember going to her and I was I was it was difficult and I was frustrated and I said to her I said I said hey I feel like I can only get so close to you I feel like our marriage we live at arm's length from one another, one another. And, and at first she didn't have language for this but as we began to get into counseling and as we began to uncover some of those things we realized that there were things in both of our past that restricted the vulnerability necessary And it took tremendous courage. And I'll give her her credit even more on her part to really be honest and forthright about some hurts that were creating distance that had nothing to do with me, that were creating distance in our relationship that made her fearful. And the truth is, is this had to happen for a long period of time before she felt secure. And I'm like, I'm not going anywhere. I committed, I've been here. I mean, it's been years. Truth is, is, is it takes time and it takes a level of, of risk on the beh- behalf of the person who's been injured. And we, we, you know, this, we gravitate towards environments of acceptance. If you're a parent, you know this. And if you don't know this, you, you need to learn this because this is your kids. If you want them to be secure, if you want them to escape sort of what you've experienced in your life, the reality is, is, is you providing an environment of acceptance in your home for them. And it's never too late. That environment of acceptance says, whenever they make mistakes or they have their faults and their failures, it's like coming in and going, look, I can't rescue you from the consequences. I can't, I can't, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna tell you it's not significant, but I still love you. I still accept you. I still care about you. And if I was where you were, I think I'd feel the same way. When you provide some level of empathy, it douses the shame and it says, this is a safe place. And they learn to securely attach because if they don't learn to securely attach, they will never one day know how to securely detach from you to securely attach to someone else the way God designed for them to do. That's how it works. And, and this takes time. And, and, it, and it leads to the second key. The, the second key from acceptance is commitment. Commitment. And that's why you have to be committed over time. And this is when the seesaw, this is the promise that no matter how much you move towards me, no how, many, how, how vulnerable it is, I'm not going to jump off the seesaw and let you crash to the ground. See, as many people hate seesaws, hate relationships in our world. Too many people have been hurt as they move towards someone exactly what they suspected would happen, happened. This is why a clarity of commitment is essential to relational security. This is why Paul, I think, offers marriage as the safest context and the best context for you to experience this true romantic intimacy that you desire. And here's the thing, when your verbal and your nonverbal cues don't align, it fosters insecurity. Now, I'm just gonna press in for a second and I promise we can be friends after this. We will survive. But when you say to somebody, I'll spend the night with you, but I, I'm not yet ready to make summer vacation plans with you. That, that, that creates insecurity in a relationship. It's like, wait, wait, wait. You're, you're, you're willing to take all of me physically, but you're not willing to commit to me in the future. When, when, when somebody puts the D word on the, on, on the table in a marriage relationship to cause someone else to feel insecure so they'll change their behavior, it muddies the, the, the clarity of their commitment in the relationship and a lack of clarity and commitment. It, it, it's manipula- manipulative. That's what it is. It, it's leveraging the freedom to leave the relationship at any point to maintain control, which is actually invulnerable. That's actually not a vulnerable thing. That's what people do when they're insecure is they try to control and manipulate the other person. And what it does is, and this is it's a terrible cycle because what it does is it ensures the other person acts in such a way. Think about that, that they, you cause them to act in the relationship in a way that keeps you around and keeps you interested. It's not authentic. Let me ask you, is that what you really want? You want someone to do the things that, that will keep you happy? Because they're afraid you'll leave the relationship? That's not what you're looking for. It's certainly not what they're looking for. I mean, don't you want someone to support your hopes and dreams and serve your needs and take your interests into account, give themselves to you fully and sacrificially because they enjoy delighting in you rather than being afraid of you? Isn't that what you want? see, when we create an expectation like, and I don't think this is by accident, I'm never going to leave you. It's like the words Jesus said, I'll never forsake you. It's limiting to you, but it's absolutely freeing to the other person to be who they really are in a relationship. Think about the marriage language. Marriage says I will give myself fully to you alone, to you alone, to nobody else. For better or for worse, in good times and in bad times, whether rich or poor, whether sick or healthy, you can rest knowing I'm not going anywhere, that I'm gonna be next to you forever. Here's why this is powerful. This, this right here, this is the model of Christ he, Jesus, he, he came toward, toward us. He moved toward us. He came into the world and he said, here's the thing, I see you as you really are and I still want to be close to you. I want an intimate relationship with you. And so what does he do? He gives of himself fully. He's willing to sacrifice, sacrifice himself fully to risk rejection in order to forge the possibility for an intimate relationship with you and me. See, it's in the security of that relationship. Honestly, outside of faith, I don't know how people do this. I've run into this and my, my wife and I, we ran into this head on. Andy would tell you, I came to him at one point, I said, I said, I don't know if we're gonna make it. He's like, you're gonna be fine. You guys are doing the right things. But I, I remember thinking, I don't know if we can get through this. And as we lean into our faith and we lean into the security that we found in our relationship with Christ, it enabled us to risk vulnerability. And it kept us from being alone. Because you know this, you can be in a relationship, you can be married, you can be surrounded by people and feel completely alone, single or married. You can feel alone from the very beginning your creator said, it's not good for you to be alone. But it requires risking vulnerability in a relationship. My wife and I moved back to the Atlanta area about a year and a half ago. And I have a friend, his name's Durwood. Some of you know him. And with his permission, he let me share this. I was catching up with him because I knew it had been a tough season for him and his wife. And um, Durwood began to share with me that back in 2016, he began to notice that his wife Judy began forgetting things, and she would she would forget things that she would normally know how to do and n- things that she would take responsibility for in their their household and and he began noticing this and and he would ask her from time to time about it, and this went on for about two years, and it progressively got worse and Durwood uh, was wanted to be really careful because he knew this this could be a really challenging thing for her to deal with when she realized what, what might be going on you know inside of her body and um, I'll never forget as Dur was telling me he said he, after doing all his research and talking to a lot of different people a lot of different doctors he realized that um, this was the early stages of Alzheimer's in her relationship or in her body excuse me and um, and he said um, he said and, and I knew we needed to do something about it we needed to help her and get some treatment. And I had done all, all sort of all my homework and I needed to have a conversation with her about it. And I said, well, tell me about that. Like, how did that go? And how did you even, how do you even do that? And he said, I told her that um, I needed to sit down and have a serious conversation with her. We, and she's like, well, let's just talk right now. And he's he like, no, that's no, it's gonna take a few hours. Like, I wanna sit down and have a, a real conversation about something. And so they sat down and he said, he began the conversation by saying, hey, I need to tell you about one of my greatest fears in life. This is something I'm more afraid of than anything else in life. After 49 years of marriage, I'm afraid you'll stop loving me. And Judy looked at him and she said, Derwood, why would you say that? I'll never stop loving you. How can you even claim that? And Derwood said, I've just been noticing you've been forgetting some things lately, and I'm afraid you'll forget that you love me. She said, "Yeah, I've been noticing. I've been forgetting some things too." I said to what "I said, how did you come up with that? Like that is that was just brilliant. Like who told you?" And He was emotional at the moment. He he just pointed up. He said, just prayed about it a whole lot. Here's what I knew. I knew that she was gonna be in a very vulnerable position. And the thing I needed to do was make myself more vulnerable than her. And if I could do that, then I think she might be willing to move toward me. In the year they're celebrating their 50th anniversary, relationships never grow out of this principle. This is reality. There's a lot to overcome, there's a lot of difficulty to be sure. But there is power in the security of a relationship with Jesus where you can risk vulnerability appropriately and wisely. Let me ask you a question. Even after forty nine years, what do you think that did for their relationship? The same thing it would do for yours if you chose to risk vulnerability for the sake of intimacy. Let me pray for you. God thank you today for the model of Durwood and Judy and the way they 've given their whole lives towards you and served you with their whole life and God, what a powerful testimony of what security in you can do to help us to become vulnerable. A a courageous weakness that actually forges the deepest of human connection. God, I pray for people who are here today who are single, who are wanting and longing for this. And they think the the answer is they've got to meet someone. and, And maybe that's true, but there's people all around them. This is true whether we're talking about friendship or whether we're talking about family or whether we're talking about romantic relationships. Being known and fully accepted is the sort of thing that allows us to securely attach to people. So I just pray for people, whether they're single or they're married today, there's married people who are wondering if they'll ever experience this. They're wondering after years, maybe 10 or 20 years of marriage, there's things they're withholding. There's things that they're, they're keeping from their spouse. And the truth is, is they're fearful to risk vulnerability. I pray that you'd give them wisdom to know when and how, where to look for help. And then I pray ultimately that they would experience the willingness and the, the courage to choose vulnerability, to lean on you and their faith relationship with you, to risk for the sake of the human connection that you designed them for. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.